This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's sermon text is Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis and Tychus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Morning, City Church. I'm Ted Sin, the church planter. Uh, here, and I'm glad that you're here. I want to welcome all of you. Today, as has been mentioned a couple of times, is a special day uh, for lots of reasons, too many reasons for me to capture, um, but it's special for me for at least these two reasons. It's, it's the last sermon in our series on the book of Titus, and it only took me seven sermons to get through it, which I think is a success. And uh, it's also uh, a special day because, as has been said, it's our birthday. It's our third birthday, uh, sort of. Um, if you calculate by Sundays, uh, exactly three years ago today, the, the second Sunday of January, City Church met together for the first time in city worship. Um, this week, God reminded me yet again of a, a saying or a proverb, if you will, that one of my professors used to give often. And I know I've said this to many of you in various venues in the past, but I'm going to give it to you again because we, we see it fresh and anew uh, today. He would say in church planting, um, he, he would say this, like so many venues in ministry and in life, you'll always overestimate what you can do in three months and you'll always underestimate what you can get done in three years. Re- restating that, in ministry, in parenting, um, in marriage, in the mortification of a particular sin, you'll always overestimate what you can do in three months and tend to underestimate what can be done in three years. And we're finally on the other side of that proverb. I can now tell you that both halves of the proverb is true. I have known for quite some time now the first half of it, that I always overestimate what I can get done in three months. I I overestimate, and I have found in my life that I overestimate what I can get done because I actually lack faith. This is going to sound a little ironic, but I want you to think about it with me for a second. I'm always trying to validate my existence through my work and my successes and my growth instead of resting in the gospel and the validation and the identity I have in Jesus. So I look to the next three months and I put these goals in front of me that are really for my validation and not for Jesus. And I always, always overestimate what I can do. And now that we're three years old, I'm telling you that I am blown away and surprised, genuinely surprised by what God has done in his power and in his goodness among us. My tendency to underestimate is also driven by a lack of faith. I don't believe God. I don't believe him that he loves me. I don't believe him that he promises to change us to change our hearts, to change our relationships, to even change our city, to change his world by his gospel power. 
It's a power that makes us weak and humble and dependent, but it's an effective power nonetheless. We should be encouraged by the fact that we still exist three years in, and there's more here today than the first. This is a work of God's grace and power. I say it's sort of our birthday and sort of a special day because City Church actually started months before our first worship service. As single folks, young marrieds, marrieds with kids, empty nesters, long before three years ago, men and women committed themselves to this work, to this church plant, and they began to live life together, and they began uh, to do uh, the work of the church together in missional small groups. You may not know this. I don't know how you can't possibly know it, because I say it all the time, but But three years ago, when the first worship service happened, there were already six small groups up and running doing City Church, being City Church. I say it all the time. I still believe it today. The truest and fullest expression of this church is the City Group. It's not as sexy. It's not as polished. It's not as safe. It's not as satisfying in the short run as this event right here, but I I genuinely believe it's the most real, it's the most transformative, it's the most satisfying element in the long run of all that we do. So it's a special day, sort of, with the end of Titus, and we're at our third birthday, which as I get older, I realize birthdays are a natural time to stop. We want to reflect on the past. We want to get a current assessment of where we actually are, and we want to make plans, Lord willing, for the future. So with this in mind, we're going to study these uh, last verses of Titus, this conclusion to Titus. We're going to study it together in these three points, where we've been, where we're going, and how we'll get there. Where we've been, where we're going, and how we'll get there. When we talk about where we've been, I'm going to primarily speak to the book of Titus and where we've been in this book, and I'll make some references to City Church. When I talk about where we're going, I'm going to quickly give us a foundational idea from Titus. I'm going to move out into where I think God's leading us in just one arena as City Church. And then we'll close out reminding ourselves of the grace of God and how we get there. So first, let's dig in. Where we've been in the book of Titus. In, in the last four verses of Titus, Paul is intentionally wrapping up his letter to his lieutenant that he put on the island of Crete, and he said to him, put what remained in order. Now, as is typical of other first century letters, we know uh, that, that in Paul's concluding remarks, there is new information that's nowhere else to be found in the letter, uh, stuff like traveling plans and, and greetings. But just like other first century letters that we have found, we, we know that Paul's concluding remarks, they're, they're consistent with They're aligned with, they're founded upon, they logically flow from the primary thrust of his letter. One commentator said it this way, that in these concluding remarks, we will hear constantly echoes of the main ideas of the letter. So in this first point this morning, I'm going to use these concluding remarks to take us back into the letter and review where we've been and what we've learned, and in some cases, talk about where we're at uh, with City Church. We're going to look at three ideas quickly in this first point. First, we're going to hear again today via the echo in the concluding remark that Titus is to appoint elders in every city of Crete. We're going to hear that Titus and the Cretans are to expect character, fruit, in their lives, 
And we're going to, uh, to look at the idea that believers are supposed to live in interdependent community. All right? So let's get going. We have a lot to cover just in this first point. And I think after that, it'll get quite exciting uh, for us. First echo to be heard in the concluding remarks. Titus is to appoint elders in every city of Crete. You, you say, where did you get that? I, I don't see the elder uh, word anywhere in verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 12 with me. Let me explain this to you. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. We, we don't know the current season when Titus receives this letter, but we know that at most 12 months from now, Paul wants him off of the island and with him in Nicopolis. And so Paul in this verse is saying, do your best to finish your chores by winter. Paul doesn't simply say, come to me by winter. He says, I'm going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you so that you can come to me. Artemis is a man you'll not find mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, but our guess is that he'll function like Tychicus since he says, I'll send one of the two to you. Tychicus is a man that we know a lot about from Paul's other letters. He's constantly taking things, money, encouragement, uh, um, news. He's taking things to people, and he's constantly guiding people, pastors, from here to there. He's a carrier. He, he's a messenger. He's a tour guide, if you will. He's, he's described by Paul in both Ephesians and Colossians this way. This is important that you understand who he is and who he's not. Tychicus is a beloved brother. This is Paul talking about him. He's a faithful deacon and a fellow servant in the Lord. And I'm getting to the point, the point of uh, the echo of the appointing elders. When, when Tychicus or Artemis gets to Crete, they're not Titus's replacement as Paul's lieutenants in Crete. They're just traveling deacons or companions. And so with that being said, with Titus's departure in mind, functionally with Paul's departure in mind, here's the question. Will these churches in Crete be left without humble authority? Will they be left without servant leadership? Will they be left without sound teaching? Will they be left without shepherding and pastoring? These roles that Titus has played, will they have to go without? And the answer is no. Verse 12, although we just kind of read it as this little instruction and this bit of information, verse 12 is pounding into Titus's heart and mind. The most important task of a church planter is the hard and time-consuming and timely and prayerful work of appointing other elders, other pastors, other local overseers who will lead and protect and expand the flock of God that God has planted through the church planter. Essentially, all of chapter 1 is echoed in verse 12 of chapter 3, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As an aside and as a brief reminder, at City Church, we are in the process of now appointing more elders to work and serve and lead alongside Rue and myself. The first step of that process was to instruct the congregation on what to look for in an elder. That part has been done. The second step will be the first quarter of this year. We will lead you in a nomination process where you will nominate candidates to, to enter into the vetting and, and the training and the examining and the ordaining. So the second echo to be heard in the concluding remarks is a little more obvious than the first. It's this, expect fruit. 
Look at verse 14. Paul talks about good works over and over and over in this book. More than any other book, good works is the theme of this book, this letter to Titus. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Verse 14 echoes what the commentators say is the primary point of the letter. He's reminding Titus that the believers in Crete, that in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit, the power for changed living, the power for living with self-control, the power for living sacrificially in the world around us, that power is available to us. It is ours in the gospel. If we just read these concluding remarks, we might learn and think, I have to devote myself to good works. It's up to me. I have to do it. Where are my bootstraps? But if this is an echo of all that has gone before it, we'll remember that in chapter 2, at the end of explaining what the gospel is, it's there that Paul says to Titus, have them devote themselves to good works. In chapters 2 and 3, over and over, Paul teaches a fully orbed gospel, a fully orbed salvation. You and I, we truncate the gospel. We cut it off. We act like it's good for some things and not other things. Most of us believe, or at least say we believe, that Jesus' death for us gives us forgiveness. This is true. All of my sins are paid for on the cross. All of your sins are taken care of in the death of Jesus. But it's only a small part of the story. Big part and small part. Some of us believe or we say we believe that Jesus' life for me gives me righteousness. I'm seen by the Father as perfect and holy and beautiful, not as one who sinned, but as one who obeyed the entire time. And God, the Father's love, is given lavishly to me because of the righteousness of Jesus put in my record at the cross. And this is true and more of the story, but not all the story, not Many of us believe or even begin to say we believe that Jesus lives now in us. Paul talks about the regenerating and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit over and over in Titus. God doesn't simply declare us forgiven in the cross. He doesn't simply say we're beautiful in the cross. He gives us a new heart at the core of our being, and that new heart loves him and loves others more than self. And over time, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit is this, to enlarge that heart, that new heart, that new life, to make us more and more about God and his kingdom and other people. Not the love of self because we're so convinced that God has loved us so fully already. And all of this is activated in us. It's experienced by us. It comes to fruition in us as God increasingly enables us to see and believe that he dearly and deeply loves us because of Jesus. And the result of chapters one, two, and three is this. Devote yourself to good works and don't be unfruitful. Final, third echo to be heard in this concluding remark is this. Believers are to live in interdependent community. Look at the interdependence exhibited in all of the final verses of Titus. Verse 12, Paul needs Artemis or Tychicus to go and get Titus. Titus needs Artemis or Tychicus to get him to Paul. Paul needs Titus with him in Nicopolis. Verse 13, Zenos and Apollos need Titus and the Cretans to provide for them, make sure they lack nothing, and send them on their way. Verse 
verse 14, our people need to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent or pressing need and not be unfruitful. Verse 15, we need greetings from one another. I think as American individualists, we tend to think about greetings like we do human touch as if we don't need it. It's not part of our needs, but we need to hear that people care about us. We need to hear that people are thinking about us. We need to hear that people are praying for us. We have a need to know that others are believing the gospel with us and oftentimes for us. One of the major themes in the Bible is this. Not only are we utterly dependent on God for every aspect of salvation, but God chooses to save us. He chooses to transform us. He chooses to have, he, he wants us to accomplish the chores he's given, of, given us. He, he saves us, changes us, and engages us in a mission in a way that we're utterly dependent on other people to make it happen. God makes every one of us needy, and then in some way he himself meets us in that need, and he meets that need through other people in the community of faith. This is an echo of many parts of this letter to Titus, but none is more obvious than chapter two. It's where Paul describes how the local church should live life together. It's older men, older women, young women, and younger men living life in an interdependent fashion. The older men are to constantly model faith, love, and hope to the community. You can't do that simply by sitting and standing on Sundays. The older women are to train, to coach, to teach the younger women in the art of love, in the art of work, in the art of kindness. You can't do that in an email every now and then. It's the consistent theme of Scripture in the concluding remarks of Titus, is shot through the whole book. We have to live life together. Not simply greeting one another during Holy Touch on Sundays. Not waving at one another when we drive by each other's houses. We've got to live together, laugh together, weep together, learn together, serve together, repent together, plan together, make huge decisions together, rest together, save money together. We're to be together. We are incredibly needy. And God meets our needs with himself through one another. As an aside, City Church, when the spring season unravels, it appears that we'll have over 20 city groups up and running. Be amazed at what God can do over three years. This is the vehicle we have put in place to make available and to honor this reality uh, that, that, that we all must learn to increasingly live life interdependently. We have two stated goals. You've probably never heard them because I infrequently talk about them in venues like this, but we have two stated goals at this church, and they, they go from our vision, they go from our values, they, they, they go forth from our strategies, but these are the two goals. The first one is this, to have 50 city groups in five years. And that five years, by the way, started three years ago when we started saying 50 city groups in five years. We have this goal because we need it so desperately right now and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of residents of Orlando that need the gospel of God that he delivers through community. We want to pursue our neighbors and we want to give them the gift of God meeting their needs through interdependent community. I'll tell you the second goal here in a second. First one, pray with me, work towards it, Let's ask God to do it. 50 goals, 50 groups, excuse me, in five years. Next, where we're going, now, now that we've kind of talked about where we've been, 
mainly looking at the book of Titus and sort of talking about ourselves. With this goal of 50 groups in five years, let's talk about where we're going. I want to give a a brief sort of foundational glimpse uh, from the book of Titus, and then I want to just kind of talk about one aspect of our future together. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 3. While there are dozens of things to discuss here at City Church, places to grow, uh, places where I think God is taking us, I'm going to limit myself to one topic, the arena of church planting. Verse 13, when I read it to you, it is one of the many verses in the New Testament that's going to teach this truth, that a healthy, vibrant church is constantly growing in supporting church planting teams that did not originate from them and in sending church planting teams from themselves. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Okay, now like Artemis, Zenos does not appear in the rest of the New Testament, but we do have this one additional fact. He's a lawyer, which means he's not to be trusted. Um, Just joking. It it just means he's a professional expert in Roman law. But Apollos, like Tychicus, is a man that shows up all over the New Testament. While Tychicus is a deacon, Apollos is a teacher. He's a pastor. He's an elder. He's a church planter. He's a missionary. And so what we see in verse 13 is this. Paul is telling Titus... He's telling the church plants in the various towns of Crete, speed this church planting team on their way. See that they lack nothing. They're called to support a church planter that is already on his way. Apollos and Zenos most likely are carrying this letter to Titus. They were not originally sent from Crete, but Paul is telling the churches in Crete to support them. Additionally, if you just kind of think about it and let it flow in your brain for a second, you're going to realize that Apollos and Zenos were sent at some point from somewhere. There's a body of believers somewhere that sent them. Somebody sent them, no longer has them. And now Titus and the Cretans can support them. Regardless of where you are with me right now, come back to me. I don't know if I lost you there or not, but you've got to hear this part. This is the very exciting part of the sermon for me as a leader at City Church and just as a part of City Church. In 2011, we are taking significant steps towards being a church that increasingly supports and sends church planting teams. We want to be a church that supports church planting teams that did not originate from us. We want to be a church that sends church planting teams that derive from us. And I'm going to add a layer here. So I'm going to say some things again, but I'm going to add a layer. So so listen, we want to take significant steps in 2011 to becoming a church that increasingly supports and sends church planting teams in four different realms, four different geographic places, downtown Orlando, metro Orlando, major cities in North America, and the global cities of the world. Why do I say that, we want, that we're becoming, that we're trying to increase in this direction? Because in 10 years, and here's the second goal for the morning. The second goal has two aspects. In 10 years, and this is one of those big, hairy, audacious, smelly goals, whatever you business people are supposed to say, but this is not a very big goal when I think about the power of God. In 10 years, I desire, I say I because I haven't shared this with a lot of people, I desire for City Church to be a church that supports with at least a million dollars a year. And right now when I say that, it sounds small. Might want to change that to three years from now. I want to be a church that supports with at least a million. See how, see how easy I am to change? You guys say I'm inflexible. I'm not inflexible. God can do this in three years. 
to support church planting teams that did not originate from our body in those four realms I already mentioned. And more importantly, and this is the crazy part, by the way, I desire for City Church to be a church that sends every year church planting teams that do originate from our body into the same four realms, downtown, metro, North America, global. And when you might ask me, now when you say in 10 years, do you mean 10 years from today or 10 years from the start? The answer is yes. And you may ask, do you mean sending a church planting team into all four realms each year or a church planting team into one of the four realms each year? And the answer is yes. Now, I've said a lot about the future. I've said a lot about growth-oriented ideas. I've talked a lot about 10 years from now, but let me talk about what I mean when I say this year we're making present tense significant steps in this direction. This should cause our hearts to leap for joy. This will cause us to want to worship. In the bank right now, from the money you gave in 2010, we have uh, money that we set aside in the budget in 2010 and money that you gave above and beyond our projected income numbers. We have in the bank right now $110,000 to invest in church planning in 2011. I think that is fantastic. Worthy of, absolutely, praise God. In 2011, 17% of the money you gave this year, 15% of our projected spending in 2011, $110,000 that we already have in the bank is going to go towards church planting in these four realms. Let me be a little more specific. In terms of international, global cities, if you've been here, you know I've never done anything like this. This is kind of a rare sermon. We'll get back to James and other stuff next week. But I just want you to know this so we can worship God and be thankful and look forward to what he might do. In terms of global cities, um, our support, I'm using the word support specifically because we're not sending them from us. Our support will be focused on India. Rue is our associate pastor. He'll continue the work that he started a few years ago. His work is, is to identify and train and support urban professionals in the global cities of India who believe that God is calling them to transition out of their current job and into becoming church planters. I'm not saying it's better to be a church planter than a lawyer. All I'm saying is there's at least one example in Scripture where somebody was called to be a lawyer. The next thing they know, they're called to be a church planter, and they were sent. At the same time, there are, there are some where in God in his providence and in his kindness had men be church planters, and then he later tells them to be something else, lawyers maybe, teachers, who knows. But, but Ru is specifically looking for men who God is putting a burden on their heart for their global city and, and the regions around there. In fact, just so you know how tangible this is, in three and a half weeks, Ru and I leave for an eight-day trip around the world with most of it in India, where we'll be visiting current church planters that we're supporting, where we'll be the, uh, talking to future church planters about whether it's their call to leave their current profession and be a church planter, and we're going to be in Delhi just basically doing the work of networking, trying to find, praying in advance for what God might have for us there to support. Pray for us in those three realms at least. Next, in terms of major cities in North America, uh, we'll be investing in supporting church plants in San Diego, California, and in Toronto, Ontario. In fact, you can be in prayer. Tomorrow morning, I fly out on a two-day trip to Toronto. I'll visit with 
the staff and the leaders of Grace Toronto. I'll do a little bit of training. They'll do a little bit of training of me, but we're going to spend most of the time praying, and I mean praying and dialoguing about what City Church Orlando can do to support them as they plant daughter churches in Toronto, in Ontario, and in Canada. Be praying. In terms of Metro Orlando, uh, City Church is partnering, we already have, partnering with other PCA churches in our region, in, in our presbytery here. And we have formed something called the Florida Network. The network is off to a fantastic start. In 2011, the goals of the Florida Network is to plant two churches, one of them in Metro Orlando. They've already asked if we would be willing to house this apprentice and to send our people with this apprentice if they find the right person in the right location. And we said, we'd be honored to do that. This will be a work of supporting from our $110,000 and potentially sending of our most valuable resources, you. Folks that are with us today that in the future will not be with us because God called them on to multiply his kingdom through church planting. It will be painful, but like having a child, it will be glorious. Finally, and most exciting to me in terms of downtown Orlando, our own backyard, and listen closely, we are sending a team into the Holden Heights neighborhood this year to begin the work of begging God for and watching God plant a church that comes from the people of the neighborhood, that proclaims the gospel in word and deed to the people of the neighborhood. As you may or may not know, Holden Heights is a very underserved and a very underdeveloped community right here in our own backyard on the west side of I-4. OBT goes right through it. All, I would say all, but not all. But, uh, yeah, all. So many of the residents of Holden Heights are living in significant poverty. The poverty is material. The poverty is spiritual. The poverty is relational. The poverty is educational. As you stroll through the neighborhood, you're impacted, and I use that word specifically. You're impacted by, by the evidence of darkness and oppressive evil, prostitution, um, drug activity, senseless violence, uh, abuse of so many kinds, systemic injustice. In keeping with our text this morning, with the first church planting team we send from this church, we're devoting ourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent needs and not be unfruitful. For this year, at least in 2011, I've, gotten, I've had Demetrius and Amy Somerville um, commit to leading this team. This year, we're calling this year of a 10-year plan to plant a church. We're calling it the year of prayer and presence. In the early part of the year, Demetrius, Amy, Jaden, Journey, Hope, they will move into the neighborhood. They will join some of you that already live in the neighborhood. They will continue to lead in prayer and dialogue other families who are already currently praying about being a part of this team and moving in as well. And I should just say right now, maybe Jesus is tugging on our hearts and telling us, I want you to pray about this opportunity, about moving in with this team and joining in this work, studying the neighborhood, learning the neighborhood, learning from the neighborhood, valuing the neighborhood, um, praying for God to show us what he's already doing in the neighborhood and what little part we might get to be in it. For at least a year, just so you kind of know, Demetrius' name, you're not getting sent off next week. The team members will continue to be with us in worship, but they will very soon be a city group in the neighborhood 
hopefully a city group that grows and multiplies with neighbors from the neighborhood, that, that eventually in time they will multiply and become a worshiping community in the neighborhood, always connected to us, but separate enough from us so they can be effective. And I mean that on so many levels. So why Demetrius and Amy? Why will they lead the year of prayer and presence? If you know them, you know why. If you don't know them, let me tell you about the work God has done in their lives. Let me brag on them for a second. Demetrius grew up in an inner city uh, Birmingham neighborhood. He He faced many forms of poverty and hopelessness. His story, the story of God's work in his life is absolutely beautiful. Uh, Demetrius has recently um, graduated from um, RTS with a master's in counseling. He currently works at the Center for Drug-Free Living. He has a a massive heart and a lot uh, of street cred when it comes to this kind of work. Amy, likewise, has a huge heart for God, God's kingdom, anyone that is hurting. Uh, she, she has experience in a master's level social work uh, environment, and, and they are absolutely convinced that God is calling them to, to lead this team in Holden Heights, at least for now, um, with the trajectory for a long time. And upon graduation, Demetrius and Amy, graduating from RTS, there were works in Harlem, there were works in Atlanta, there were works in other places um, that they turned down in order to be with us and to be sent from us and to lead a team uh, that, Lord willing, uh, will spread light and peace and the grace of God in Holden Heights. This is fantastic news to my heart. We should be cheering. If we... Even if it fails, we should be cheering. What a gift to our church uh, to get to be a part of this and support it however it turns out, including in how to pray, including in the money that we're giving to the team. Um, We will be telling you in the coming weeks how you can support this work. But let me just say this. Let me adopt my professor saying and adapt my professor saying, I think in this glorious and, and in a lot of ways this devastated context, we should be careful to not overestimate what we can do in 10 months. And we should be careful to not underestimate what God can do in 10 years. Um, I'm going to pray with my family about us moving in. I'm serious about wanting you to do the same. This is a big, big opportunity for our church. Now, to summarize where we're going, at least in this one arena of church planting. Um, With the money we saved last year, we're taking significant steps this year towards our 10-year goal of being a church planting engine that generously supports and regularly sends out church planting teams. Now, crucially and quickly, and I mean both of those, how will we get there? In all of these realms we talked about today, how will we get to the place of appointing the right elders? How will we get to the place of bearing fruit? How will we have 50 city groups, however long it takes, being grace and peace and truth and love to our neighbors? How will we become the church that supports and sends church planting teams? How will we get there? Look at the last sentence in the book of Titus for our answer. And by the way, the answer to how we will get there is the same answer to the question of how we got here. Verse 15, the very end, grace be with you all. How? Grace. The unmerited, undeserved, unsolicited, unlosable, there's got to be a better word, I made that one up. The unlosable grace of God 
Is it not how we got here? None of us got to this place. None of us got here in our faith, in our relationships, in our growth and character. None of us got here by our works, our merit, our ingenuity, our perseverance, our luck. We got here by the sheer grace and mercy and love and patience and forbearance of God. It's going to be the same today and it's going to be the same in the future. How will we get there? The grace of God. But look a little closer at the verse. This is why this is one of my favorite benedictions in all of Scripture. It doesn't say, remember the grace of God, like remember it, and that will motivate you to be able to do this. What does it say? It says, grace be with you. Remember, we said that these concluding remarks are echoes of the main themes of the letter. What does he mean when he says, grace be with you, as if it's something substantial to be with you? Look at Titus 2.11, if you have your Bibles. If not, listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Appeared is the word that we, where we get epiphany. It's, it's always in the Bible a visible, a visible, physical, real appearance. It's never figurative. He, he's saying when he says grace has appeared, he's saying in the epiphany, and in the advent, and in the incarnation, and in the body and blood of Jesus, grace has appeared. So, so what is he saying? What is he praying? What is he benedicting? In this last verse of Titus, how will you get there? The same as how you got here. Jesus be with you all. We're going to sing a song of worship to God when I start to pray. Parents, get your children. We're going to receive publicly some new members, giving them a chance to take their vows uh, to Jesus and his church. And then we're going to watch a story um, of one of the, the, the members joining today as they bear witness in the story of what God has done in their life. And I want to use that as the illustration of this point of the transformative power of Jesus and how we can rest sure that he's going to take us there. Let's pray.